do miss many this morning. I will say this, that I am very thankful in the house of God that our blessings are not a result of how many we have. It's not a blessing of how smart we are. It's not a blessing of how strong we are. But our blessings in the house of God come from the hand and from the arm of one who can own and bless, whether with many or few, with, with strong or weak, rich or poor. It's, it's, it doesn't matter uh, as far as his arm is concerned. And I would ask that you pray that uh, deliverance happen this morning. I, um, as Brother Greg was praying, I would like to say how thankful I am to personally see all of them here this morning. I, uh, I know they were here last Sunday when I was at Lavernia, but uh, Sister Amanda introduced herself to me, and I introduced myself back to her. And it's good to see faces that I haven't seen in a while, and thankful the Lord has blessed them with health uh, to be here as a family. I'd like to look at a subject this morning that if you'll bear with me, it's a, it's a very broad subject, and I'm going to have to move very fast. I ask that you forgive me for that, and if I get stuck on any one point, um, either I won't get done or we'll be here all afternoon, and I don't think you want either one of those, so if you'll forgive me, I'm just going to make a few points on each one as we move through. I'd like to look at the uh, miracle births that happened in the Bible. And in the Bible, there are, by my count, eight of them. And the first seven actually in some way point to the eighth that was to come. And these births that happened, there is no natural, logical explanation for them. There is only one thing that can be said is that the Lord was in the matter. The Lord moved. The Lord blessed. And as a result of that, something happened that would ultimately point to something that was coming. The first of these is actually first promised in Genesis 12, and it doesn't actually come to pass until uh, Genesis uh, 21. But this is the uh, very familiar story of Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac. Now, what's interesting about this is that when the Lord first promises this child to Abraham and to Sarah... He promises it when Abraham is 75 years old and Sarah is 65 years old. And had it happened then, that would have been amazing. But it didn't happen then. And about 10 years go by and they're, I guess, a little tired of waiting. And so Sarah says, well, obviously the Lord needs help with this. So here's my handmaid. Here's Hagar. Take her, have a son with her, and that will be the fulfillment of the Lord's promise. And Ishmael was born. And the Lord says, no. It's been 10 years, but that's not the promised son. So now Abraham's 85 and Sarah's 75, and the child still hasn't been born. And even if he'd been born then, that would have been amazing. But another 10 years go by, nothing happens. Now he's 95, she's 85. Another four years go by, and now he's 99, and she's 89. And the Lord tells him in Genesis uh, 20 that next year, according to the time of life, Thy wife Sarah shall embrace a son. And at one point Abraham laughs, at one point Sarah laughs. They both laugh at the promise that God had made unto them. And I don't believe, friends, that I probably would have acted any different. I'm not a very patient person. But if you can imagine waiting 24 years for a promise that hasn't yet come to pass, it would have been uh, trying at times. But Abraham is told as a character of faith. Sarah is told as a character of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And so even though they had slips, even though they had stumbles along the way, as we all do, like a conversation my daughter and I were having last night, even great men and great women, those who are uh, characterized in the Bible as giants and those who are pillars, are people who still have 
uh, weakness and frailty like all of us do. But the Lord says, now I've told you when it's going to happen. And when it happens, Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90. Would it be a stretch for me to tell you that there is no natural explanation for this at all? Nature will not allow for this. Nature will not allow for this circumstance to happen. But when the Lord puts his hand in the matter and the Lord intervenes, things can happen contrary to nature and things can happen that there is no explanation for us to have. And Isaac's birth, when it came about, was one in which it actually says specifically in Hebrews 11 that through faith, Sarah herself received strength to bring forth a son. There was, a fa- there was not just the Lord's power involved, but there was faith involved here as well. Because I'm sure... <laughs> Let me ask you a question. When you have a big change in your life, is there anxiety? Is there fear? Is there worry? Is there nervousness? Now, I remember when we were expecting our last one, at least, Lord willing, our last one. Angela told me we're done. And so, uh, unless the Lord has a very big sense of humor, Asa's our last one. And when Asa was uh, being, we were looking for him, my wife told me, and I'm not trying to embarrass her, but she told me, she goes, I'm not as young as I was when we were going to have John. It was a an actual physical thing that she had to consider. There was actually something about that that, you know, put something there that wasn't there before. As I've gotten older, there are things that I think about that I didn't think about before. There's things that I, like, I'll just be honest. Uh, Some of y'all saw this. I don't roller skate like I used to. I, I, I don't know what happened. I mean, Ellie wanted to have a skating party. I said, I mean, I used to skate really well. I skate like a cow on ice now. I mean, it was sad. Now, every lap around the rink got better, but it was still sad. I've still got bruises to show what happens. Friends, as you get older, you start thinking about things you didn't think about before. I'm sure that when those nine months of Sarah expecting Isaac, there there were things happening. There were some things that had to be resolved in their mind. And yet the Bible tells us that Sarah, even though she had laughed in the tent door, she was resolved in her mind that because through faith she received strength to bring forth a son in her old age. And friends, when those friends and neighbors and family saw that, there was no explanation for what was going to happen. And friends, when it comes to the Lord's power and the Lord bringing about life, there is no natural explanation for it because it can only be done by the hand of Almighty God. Now, I'm going to circle back to all these when we get to the end, so let's move on. We find that the next birth that takes place is one that happens with Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. This is five chapters later in uh, Genesis 25, where now Abraham and Sarah are both dead, and here's Isaac, who is the promised son of Abraham, who is through him, the Lord said he would bless his seed to be, through him, this uh, son that he calls thine only son Isaac, that you're going to be the father of many nations and you're going to bless all nations. And now here's Isaac and his wife Rebekah's womb is barren, can't bring forth children. So Rebekah is praying to the Lord and the Lord hearkens unto her and she conceives and bring forth to bring forth uh, children. And the children that she's going to have are twins and they're struggling in her womb. And she says, Why is it thus with me? Why am I experiencing this? And the Lord tells her, two manner of people, two nations are in your womb. 
And verily the elder is going to serve the younger. And then later he would say about these two children that Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And this birth that takes place, the Lord only blesses one of those children that came forth from uh, from, uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Now this is again not according to nature because by nature these boys are the same. By nature they're brothers. By nature they're twins. I actually have first cousins who are twins. And they're both crazy. They're both nuts. They're not exactly the same kind of nuts, but they're both nuts. And and they speak in a way that only they understand. When we're around them, they have little things that they say with each other that we don't get. They can talk to each other without opening their mouth. It's, It's very strange. But that's not how it was with Jacob and Esau. They were different. Jacob was a smooth man. He was a mama's boy. He was a whiny pants. He was one who you wouldn't have thought of him as being a really good person to choose. And yet here's Esau, who's a manly man, who's his father's son, who is a hunter, who's a, a, a good, a seemingly a good natural man, and yet the Lord said he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. The Lord doesn't do things according to our way of thinking. It's in our way of thinking to think of things in a certain order, in a certain progression. And the Lord says, I'm not thinking about it that way. You remember what the Lord said to, uh, through Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and 46? He says, how be it, that is not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterwards, that which is spiritual. It would have made sense to me that if the Lord was going to take care of salvation for his people, that he'd have done that on the front end. But yet it said that the first thing that happened was natural. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The first man is of the earth, earthy. But the second man is the Lord from heaven. The last Adam is made a quickening spirit. Friends, the last Adam and the second man came thousands of years after the first man. But I'll tell you this, friends, that spiritual one that came, that one that the Lord chose, the one that the Lord blessed, it was not according to nature, just as Jacob is not according to nature. If I was to tell you about two boys, and these two boys growing up, they were pretty much both rascals, but one of them the whole time he was growing up was stealing things from his brother, and the whole time he was stealing things from his brother, his brother would get mad until one day he finally stole something that was so big and so precious The older brother said, I'm going to kill you. So the younger brother runs away, and you don't see him for about 20 years or 30 years. And then when he comes back, you see his older brother say, I forgive you and embrace him and kiss him. Which one of these two boys would you choose? Which one would you have uh, a lot of uh, 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 fondness for? I tell you, it wouldn't be the thief. It wouldn't be the rascal. I said, look at that amazing show of love that that older brother forgave his younger brother. Let me tell you something, friends. Jacob has nothing valuable of himself. Jacob has nothing worthy of himself. The Lord found him in a desert land, in a waste-howling wilderness, but he led him about, he instructed him, and he kept him as the apple of his eye. And may I just say this when it comes to the account in Genesis 33. Esau embracing Jacob, kissing him, forgiving him, not taking his life, is not a show of good conscience on Esau's count. He didn't have one. It's not a show of love on Esau's count. He didn't have it. Goats don't have love. Goats don't have a good conscience. If you ever need proof of the the restraining, powerful hand of providence of God in this world, you go to Genesis 33 and 34 and you see it. There's only one reason why a wicked man 
would embrace his brother who stole from him and have affection for him is that the Lord restrained him and would not allow him to do what he wanted to do. Friends, I cannot imagine what this world would look like if the restraining hand of God's providence was not present every single day of our lives. But friends, the fact that God's hand is here is the reason that we have liberty to do things like we do this morning. It's the reason, friends, that we can raise our children in a safe environment. It's because God's providence and God's hand abides on the world on a regular and a, consent, and a consistent basis. So here's Jacob, not worthy, but yet loved. Here's Jacob, who is second, but yet chosen. Here's Jacob, who again by nature should not have happened, but he comes along, and the Lord loves him, and the Lord chooses him. The next one is actually, again, the very next generation. You go five more chapters, and you find that Jacob has, his family has grown. He has two wives and uh, two concubines, or handmaidens, whatever you want to call them. And at this point, he's already had ten children. At this point, he's had ten sons. But he hasn't had a single son by the wife that he loves. There was an experience in his life where his sin found him out, and what, was, what he had done got done to him. As he stole from his brother, so his uncle stole from him. As he deceived his father, so his uncle deceived him. And he labored seven years for a wife named Rachel. And after seven years, Laban didn't give him Rachel. He gave him Leah, her older sister. And so Jacob labored another seven years, and he got Rachel. I've heard it said that Jacob labored seven for Leah and seven for Rachel. Friends, he labored 14 for Rachel. That's what he really did. That's how much he loved Rachel. And yet, even after all this, the Lord had withheld bearing from Rachel's womb. She couldn't have children. Leah had a lot of children. She had produced many sons for Jacob. The handmaidens had produced sons for Jacob. But here's Rachel crying out to God, crying out to her husband because she doesn't have children. And even Jacob gets mad at her. He said, who am I to be in God's place with withheld bearing from thee? Who am I? Why are you coming to me? I can't help you with this. But God hearkens to Rachel. And he opens her womb, and she brings forth a son by the name of Joseph. And of all of Jacob's children, Joseph was the one that he prized. He already had ten sons, but Jacob was, uh, Joseph was above all the rest. Again, it would have been logical to pick Reuben. He was the oldest. It might have been logical to pick another one who had some talent or some quality. But when Joseph came along, that was the beloved that was the one whom his father prized. And it almost broke Jacob to the point of death when he thought Joseph was dead. And you know the story about how Joseph went into Egypt and ended up becoming the ruler of Egypt and delivering Jacob and his whole family. And this boy that came forth, I would submit to you, is probably the strongest type of Christ that you can find in the Old Testament. It's either him or David. They both have a lot of them. But friends, here's Joseph who was... Not even the, not the first, not the second, not even the, the fifth or the sixth. He's the 11th in progression. And yet, here he is, the beloved son of his father. Now, I'm making all right time, but if I get stuck on Joseph, I'm going to get lost. So let's move on. The very next one that happens is found in Judges chapter 13. This is the only one of these uh, birds where I don't know what the mama's name is. So if you'll allow me, I'm just going to call her Mrs. Manoah. Because uh, I know Manoah is the man, I just don't know what the woman's name was. I uh, was actually preaching one time, and I said, Noah, Mrs. Noah, 
Ham, Mrs. Ham, Shem, Mrs. Shem, and Japheth and Mrs. Japheth went into the ark because those were the eight souls that were saved by water. And after church, a lady came up to me. It was actually a preacher's wife. She said, you don't know Noah's wife's name? And I went, no, I don't. And she goes, well, you should. And I'm sitting there going through, mentally going through the Bible, going, have I missed something somewhere? She goes, her name was Joan. I went, what? She goes, you know, Joan of Arc. And I was like, she got me on that one. So if you know what Mrs. Manoah's name is, you can come tell me later. Apparently Noah's wife's name Joan. But moving on. So here we have in uh, Judges 13, a man by the name of Manoah, and his wife has an angel appear unto her. And she's barren. She can't have children. These are, uh, this couple is of the tribe of Dan. And this is a time in the Judges where men did that which was right in their own eyes. If you want to know why Judges is such a, a dreadful cycle of ups and downs, that's what happens when men do that which is right in their own eyes. You'll end up with times of trial and distress and agony and ruin. So here's a time when the Philistines are in power. The Israelites have been put down. They're in agony. They're in, in, in trial. And this angel tells Mrs. Manoah that she's going to have a child. And he's going to be a judge over Israel. And he's going to rule and he's going to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And she doesn't know who it is, but she tells her husband about it. So he says, well, let's go back and see where this was. And so they go back, and when the angel reappears to both of them, he knows that it's an angel, and he says, we're going to die because we've seen the face of the Lord. And the angel said, no, you're not going to die, but your wife is going to have a child. And she does have a child by the name of Samson. And Samson, by my best uh, understanding, was the strongest man that the Bible ever talks about. He had strength that just defied men's ability to fathom. He had such strength that he could kill uh, a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. He had such strength at the end of his life given to him by God that he could pull an entire house down by the pillars and kill probably close to 8,000 Philistines on that occasion. He had strength that was just beyond measure to quantify. And friends, his strength was not in his hair. His strength was in the Lord. The hair was a figure and a token of the covenant that God had upon him because the Lord said about this boy that he would be a Nazarite. And the law of the Nazarite would be upon him, and there would no razor come upon his head. He would not drink wine or strong drink. He would not come upon any dead carcass. He was to keep himself pure and chaste all his life, which he didn't, and the Lord judged him for it. But here's Samson, who has such strength, who has such uh, 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 amazing physical ability. And the thing about Samson that's amazing to me is that in spite of all that he had done, in spite of all that he was, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, if you want to know how lifestyles end, you go read the Word of God. It'll tell you how lifestyles end. If you want to know how a homosexual lifestyle ends, go look at what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's how that lifestyle ends. It ends in barrenness, ruin, and scorched. Uh, uh, I mean, that's where the Dead Sea is now. I mean, it, nothing grows there. It's barren. It's dead. But if you want to know how the life of a womanizer ends, you look at Samson. A man who loved and prized women above all other things to the point that he just lost his head completely. I mean, I, it, it, it blows my mind. I mean, here's Delilah telling him, where's the source of your strength? And he says, well, if they bind me with seven green whiz that were never dried, I'll be weak. Well, she wakes him up, and guess what? He's bound with seven green whiz. What a coincidence. But he breaks him off. And then she cries and says, why won't you tell me where your strength is? And he goes, well, if they bind me with new ropes that no man ever wore, I'll be weak. Well, guess what? That night she wakes him up. Hey, the Philistines are here. I've got new ropes on my hands. What a coincidence. 
Well, if they weave the seven locks of my hair into the web, I'll be weak and I won't be able to move. Well, that night he had his hair weaving into the lock. I mean, at what point does Samson go, this woman might be trouble? I mean, you know, I mean, it just seems obvious. And yet he still falls victim. And when his hair is cut, and I'll just say it's almost like the final straw because he'd already been so unfaithful to his vow as a Nazarite, when that token of that covenant was gone, the Lord removed his hand and said, I'll be with you no more. And friends, that's where his strength was, with the Lord's hand. And he was weak, and he couldn't move and do what he used to do. But what's amazing is that despite of all of that, here he is turning in a circle. Can't even see. Eyes have been put out. Grinding in the prison house. Friends, that's what happens when the Lord departs. You end up blind, turning in a circle, going round and round. And then like Nebuchadnezzar, his reason came unto him, and he prayed one more time. He said, Lord, one more time. Give me strength to avenge mine enemies. And friends, in his death, he killed more than he ever had in his life. He delivered Israel more in his death than he did in his entire life. And here's the strongest man who ever lived who had to beg for his strength once more. The next one is found in 2 Kings chapter 4. I realize I'm skipping a lot of stuff, but y'all bear with me. I hope in about 10 minutes to bring all this home in one big thing. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we have a wise woman of Shunem who she has her whole life changed for one man. She sees Elisha coming and going back and forth and she perceives that he's a man of God. And I want you to notice, and this woman is called in 2 Kings 4 a great woman. She's called a great woman. And here's what made her such a great woman in my opinion. She changed her entire lifestyle for this man of God. She told her husband, we need to add on to our house. She told her husband, we need to have this man stay with us every time he's here. She basically took her house and she patterned it around the man of God. Friends, it would be good for us to pattern our lives around the house of God, the people of God, the word of God, the teachings of God. The Bible says in Matthew 6 and verse 34, or 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and, all the, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What is he talking about? Food, clothing, all the necessities of life. The Lord sees to those things. The Lord takes care of those things. And when we put him first... I don't have to worry, friends, about, well, if I, if I go to church, I'm going to miss out on this. Well, if I am a faithful church member, I'll miss out on that. I mean, I'll say this. Uh, the world has not made it easy for young parents. They, they really haven't. I mean, I remember when I was a boy, they didn't have sporting events on Sunday. Do you remember those times? I remember times when they didn't even have sporting events on Wednesday nights because some people had Wednesday night church. Now you tell people, well, we can't participate because we're going to be in church, and they go, Huh? I mean, it's a foreign concept to people now. And yet this woman changed her entire life for Elisha. She changed her house. She changed her manner of living. She changed all these things. And finally, when Elisha says, I want to do something for this woman, he tells his servant, you go and you ask her, what shall be done? Shall I speak to you for the king, to the king? Shall I give you riches? What, what shall be done for you? And notice this woman's statement. She says, I dwell in the midst of my own people. I'm content. My life is okay. And Elisha goes, 
what should be done for her. And a servant says, well, she doesn't have a child. So Elisha calls her to him and says, next year, about the time of life, you're going to embrace the son. Much like the Lord told Abraham and Sarah. And she doesn't want to believe it. She says, don't lie to me. Don't, don't do this to me. And Elisha says, it's going to happen. And she does. She embraces a son that she couldn't have. And the Lord blessed her. The number of years go by. By this time, I would say that Elisha has probably been with his family over 20 years because this child is at least grown enough to be out in the field working with his father. He's at least uh, had enough years on him that there's been a, a pretty settled pattern in this family's home. And that child one day, out in the field with his father, cries out, my head, my head, and he sends the child back to his mother. And she has him on her knees when he dies. I mean, he could have been 15, 16, 18, 20, I don't know. But he died right there in her lap. And I want you to remember what this great woman did when she sends to Elisha. She tells her servants, you don't slack for me, you keep going. And when Elisha sees the people coming, and he says, it's that woman, that great woman of Shunem, he sends a message through the hand of his servant to that woman with three questions. Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And her response is, it is well for all three. Here's a woman heartbroken over losing her child. It's well. Here's a woman whose life has been shattered in a way that she couldn't have imagined 20 years prior because she didn't have a child, and she says it's well. And the amazing thing is now her child is dead, but what is the case with the child? It's well. Because, friends, even when death happens... It's well with us because we have a better land that we go to. This woman understood that. But friends, it didn't change the fact that she had grief, that she had sorrow. Because when she got to Elisha, she grabs him and she's on the ground crying. And even Gehazi, the servant, goes to drive her away and he says, leave her alone. The Lord hid from me what had happened. This is anguish of soul. And you know the story. He goes back with her to the house. He stretches himself seven times upon the child. The child sneezes, he opens his eyes, and he's restored back to life. Here's a case where not only should life not have been, but after life had left, the Lord brought life back when this child was raised from the dead. And this woman, whose life had been so changed by this man of God's presence, it was changed again when she saw life come back from the dead. What does it say in Hebrews 11? By faith, women receive their dead back to life. This woman's faith and this woman's joy was given its fruitful outcome when the Lord brought this child back to life. And friends, may I say this. Our faith sometimes doesn't bring about events that we would expect. It doesn't bring about things that maybe we most desire. But what faith allows us to do is to see things that we couldn't see otherwise. Because friends, there were some people who their dead was raised back to life and it says in that very same passage in Hebrews 11 that others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. And the, th fact that, the fact that this woman could say it is well when her child was dead and be able to say it is well when her child is alive means that she not only saw her dead child raised back to life, but she was looking for a better resurrection. Much like David when his child died and he rose up from the dirt and he'd been mourning in sackcloth and ashes, he goes to his own home, he cleans himself up, 
He goes to the house of God. He worships and then he goes back to his own home and has bread set down before him. And his servants are confused and they don't understand what's going on. They said, we don't get this. When the child was sick, you were down in the dirt. Now the child's dead and you're eating. And here's what David said. Who did know? While the child was yet alive where the Lord would have mercy. But now he is dead and I cannot bring him back to me. But I shall go to him. Friends, David understood that there was going to be coming a day when he would see his child again. And that woman understood when her son died, even though her heart was broken, that it was still well because she would see him again. But the Lord blessed and by faith she saw him again that very day and had many more years of enjoyment and fellowship and company with her son. The last one that is mentioned is actually the only one of the ones we've discussed that is not in the Old Testament. It's found in Luke chapter 1. It's the case of John the Baptist who was born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. They were uh, <coughs> a family who, <coughs> best that I can tell, was part Levi and part Judah because Zechariah was a priest, but Elizabeth and Mary were called cousins. So there was some of Levi's blood and some of Judah's blood and their lineage. But here's Zechariah, a priest, and the Lord comes to him, or Gabriel comes to him one night while he's ministering and tells him that you're going to have a child. Well, Elizabeth was barren. She couldn't have a child. But the Lord says you're going to have one, and here's going to be his case. The Spirit of the Lord is going to be upon him from his birth. The Spirit of the Lord is going to be with him, and he's going to be a, the, the one that the Old Testament prophesied about as the heralder of the Christ, the heralder of the Messiah, the herald of Emmanuel, God with us, who was going to prepare people for the Lord to make straight his paths and to uh, uh, make a highway for our God. And Zechariah says, no, that's not going to happen. I'm old. My wife Elizabeth is barren. How am I going to know this is going to happen? And Gabriel says, okay, you want to know? Here's how you know. You can't talk anymore. And he went out that night from his ministering, and he couldn't talk. And for nine whole months, he couldn't talk until the day that John was born. And the angel had already told him, this is what you're going to name him. So when all the family was like, well, we're going to name him Zacharias after his father, he actually called for a writing tablet. He wrote down his name as John. At that moment, his mouth was open, and he began to prophesy what John was going to be. And friends, John was an interesting person. He was unique in almost every way. He was the last Old Testament prophet. He was the first New Testament preacher. He was the only one who got to herald the coming of Christ. He was the only one who got to baptize Christ. He was the one who the scriptures prophesied would be the forerunner of Christ. And what is said about John by Zacharias about him is that he would be the one that would point out, here's the Messiah, here he is who comes. And this, this one, John the Baptist, pointed him out and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now my question to you is, of all those things, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Y'all forgive me. I've got to circle back and get Hannah. Y'all let me forget Hannah. Hannah in, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the mother of Samuel, she had a child that she prayed for. And she promised the Lord, if you'll give me this child, I'll give him to you. And if I give him to you, he'll be your minister and your servant all your days. And the Lord hearkened unto Hannah, opened her womb, and because of that, he blessed Hannah to have five children after Samuel, three sons and two daughters, because she honored her promise in giving Samuel to the Lord. Now, what do all of these seven uh, children, all of these seven circumstances 
have in common with the eighth one? Well, let's look at the eighth one, because the eighth one is found in uh, Luke chapter 1, as well as Matthew chapter 1, when the same angel, Gabriel, goes from Zechariah and Elizabeth to Joseph and Mary. And he tells Joseph, and he tells Mary what's going to happen. And what's different about this one is all those others happened to a couple who were having a normal couple's relationship. Do I need to get any more specific, or do you understand what I mean? They were living as a man and a wife. Joseph and Mary were not. Mary was a virgin. They were married, but they hadn't yet come together. And now the Lord says about Mary that the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, and thou shalt conceive a son. And that holy thing that shall be conceived of thee shall be called the Son of God. And even Mary asked, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Joseph, when considering why his wife Mary, who he had not been with, was expecting a child, the angel comes unto him and says, Fear not, Joseph, to take unto thee Mary thy wife. For that thing that has been conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins. And here is a supernatural event. And I'll just say this, friends. If we ever give up the doctrine of the virgin birth, we might as well give up all the rest of it as well. Because the virgin birth is one of our proofs that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, was qualified to do what he came to do, and did do what he said he would do. Because, friends, had he been just a regular child born to regular parents, he would have been a sinner by nature just as we are. He'd have been stained by the, the stench of depravity just like we are. But with no earthly father, with no one on earth that could claim his patronage, you have one here who is not stained by the work of Adam, who is not tainted by the depravity that Adam brought on his family. And he was a qualified and a uh, 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 chosen, not only sacrifice, but also priest to bring salvation to his people. And I submit to you, he did save his people from their sins. Now, how did he do it? Well, the first thing he did is he didn't do it according to nature. Remember Isaac? He was not according to nature. What does Paul say about Isaac in Galatians 4? He says, we brethren, as Isaac was, are heirs of promise. We're a birth by promise. The Lord does not choose us. The Lord does not bless us. The Lord does not save us based on how good we are or any other natural circumstance. I am not blessed by God to be saved and part of his family because my last name is Conley, because your last name is Huckabee, because any of you have the last name or the patronage that you have. Now, I'm thankful that I came from a good family. I'm thankful I had good parents. But friends, that's not why the Lord chose me. That's not why the Lord saved me. It was not done according to nature. There is no natural explanation for how the Lord did what he did. But I submit to you that when the Lord did it, it was right and just and proper every time. Would it have been right, friends, for the Lord to have blessed Abraham and Sarah to have a son when they were 75 and 65? If it so chose to please him, it would have. But it chose to please him to bless them when they were 100 and when they were 90. Why? I don't know. But the Lord did it that way and it was right. Friends, who does the Lord choose? I don't know who they all are, but when the Lord did it, it was right. Someone might say, well, certainly it's because of something that they were. It was in spite of what they were. Friends, the Lord didn't bless Abraham and Sarah because of their natural strength. He blessed them in spite of their natural strength. And friends, when he came and he saved his people from their sins, he didn't choose what the world considers honorable. I already told you Esau was considered more honorable in the eyes of the world than Jacob. But the Lord didn't do it that way. 
The Lord didn't choose the mighty. The Lord didn't choose the noble. The Lord didn't choose the wise. He didn't choose the ones that had all the, the, the great things that the world sets by. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that not many wise men, not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh are called. I love what Queen Victoria said about that. She said, I thank God for the M's of the Bible. Because if the M's weren't there, it said not any. But it said not many. And friends, there are things in this world that the, the world treasures and the world prizes that the Lord cares nothing for. He doesn't care anything for those things. And with all the, uh, all the charity that I probably don't have, may I just say this, there are a lot, a lot of activities that we engage in that the Lord could care less about. I don't mind when asked, and I have, to pray for the safety of people who are participating in an athletic event. I don't mind doing that. I have. I've prayed before baseball games, prayed before football games. I've offered prayers. But friends, I've never asked and prayed the Lord for a certain outcome to those games. You understand the difference? I want those that are participating to be safe and to be blessed. But friends, the Lord doesn't care who wins the college World Series. The Lord doesn't care who wins the Super Bowl. The Lord doesn't care who wins the, world, the, the, the national championship. The Lord does not care about those things. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't care at all, but friends, put it in perspective. Put it in perspective. What the Lord cares about and what he cared about with Jacob was not what Jacob had to offer him, but what he blessed Jacob to have. He didn't just bless Jacob with a family. You remember what Jacob said when he was in a place called Luz? In Genesis 28, when he was not where he was supposed to be, not doing what he was supposed to do, but he was running for his life, he says when he comes out of his dream, sure that the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he offered there upon the rock that he'd made for a pillow a sacrifice, and he called the name of the place Bethel. He says, for I have been, I've seen the entrance of heaven, or the very gate of heaven, when he saw Jacob's ladder, that we call it extending from earth to heaven, and angels of God ascending and descending upon it. Friends, the Lord blesses us in spite of who we are. The Lord finds us in spite of where we are. And the Lord blesses us and chooses us in a way that we don't really understand, at least not right now. But like Jacob, we are chosen and blessed in spite of who we are. And this birth of Jesus Christ being on this wise, it wasn't the first birth that ever happened. It certainly wasn't even the... Uh, the First birth, you might say, in his family. Because, friends, his natural birth into this world was actually preceded by a lot of spiritual births. Abraham was regenerated. Sarah was regenerated. Moses was regenerated long before Christ ever got here. And, friends, Joseph wasn't the first son that Jacob had, but I'll tell you this, he was special to all the sons that Jacob had. And when Christ came on the scene 2,000 years ago, he may have not been the firstborn in the sense of sequence of things, but he was the first begotten and the only begotten of his father. He was chosen and prized by his father. And it may have not been what the world expected, but I'm going to tell you, just as Jacob gave his son honor among his brethren, so the Lord gave his son honor among his brethren. He was anointed with the oil of gladness above all his fellows. Jacob gave his son a coat of many colors, and that coat that was taken from him I'll tell you, it was restored back when he became the ruler of Egypt. And what the Lord gave his son, that men tried to pry and men tried to take from him, that men pierced him and men bruised him, 
put him on a cross, to put him to death. I'm going to tell you, the Lord gave him all that he had back and then some when he went back to glory. And when you look at what Jesus Christ has done for us and you see the, the deliverance that we have through him, while he was not what we would have expected according to nature and while he was not what the world was looking or what the Jews were looking for, I'm going to tell you what we got was the special appointed one of his father who the father calls his elect, my beloved, the one whom I have chosen, the one whom I have appointed, the one whom I have laid in Zion as a foundation, as a stone, a precious cornerstone. And if we believe in him, what does it say? Is the promise will not be confounded, will not be confused. We won't make haste. We won't have to worry about what's going to happen because, friends, because Jesus Christ, the well-beloved of his Father, has done what he has done, we have the hope and we have the expectation in this world that though we fall and though we stumble, yet he has done all things well. And because he has done all things well, we have the hope and the expectation that we'll be with him some sweet day. Now, I don't have the time to talk about why it is that people were regenerated before Christ was born into this world, but we'll talk about that at lunch if you'd like. The answer, I believe, is found in Romans chapter 3. But moving along, what is it about uh, Samson that is so much like Christ? Because, friends, Samson is, I do believe, a type of Christ, but not in all the ways I've already discussed. Christ wasn't a womanizer. Christ was not unfaithful to his vow. Christ was not one who, who disregarded the word of the Lord. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. Christ had strength that this world could not explain. Let me ask you a question. How much strength does it take if you are innocent of something and somebody is casting things in your teeth, threatening you, punishing you, for you not to open your mouth? That takes a lot of strength. But when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. Neither was there any guile found in his mouth, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. But I ask you this, even now, what strength does it take not to come down and just set everything in order? It takes a lot of strength. But friends, I'm thankful that he has such long-suffering. Because Peter says in 2 Peter 3, to account that the long-suffering of God is salvation. What he's waiting for, friends, is he's waiting for his last heir to come, to be born again, and then he's going to settle the affairs. But it takes a lot of strength, friends, for his reservation, I'll say, to hold back on what he could do. But friends, he showed more strength at the end of his life than he did in all of his life to that point. How high is heaven from earth? I have no idea. I mean, if I ask you where's heaven, what are you going to do? You're going to do that. You know, if we all were moved to Australia right now and asked you where's heaven and you did that, we wouldn't be pointing in the same place. We'd be pointing in opposite directions. All I know is heaven is above us. How high is it? I don't know. How far is it? I have no idea. But let me ask you this. How low is hell? I have no idea. The reason I have no idea, friends, is because heaven is where God dwells and the beauty and the glory there is beyond my ability to comprehend. And hell is where our depravity would take us and our depravity is worse and our condition is worse than I can possibly imagine. Man at his, 
and his worst state is worse than anything we've ever imagined. And God at his best state is higher than anything we've ever imagined. And yet Christ didn't just go here. Christ went here. I can't explain it the way I want to, but friends, he had to taste what I should have tasted so that I would never taste what was reserved and what was justly mine. How far was that? I don't know. How hard was that? I don't know. But it was hard enough, friends, that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Friends, the worst time of your life that you've ever felt forsaken pales in comparison to how he felt. Because I've never been forsaken, and neither of you. We were forsaken in Christ, but that's it. We've never been personally forsaken in this world. He was. How did that feel when God forsook him? Friends, it was the hardest trial that any man has ever gone through. But in his death, he destroyed more and he delivered more than he ever had. Because he put down all rule. He put down all authority. He put down all powers and all principalities. Death, hell, the grave, the law, all been put down through his death. The devil... All of his armies, all of his forces were crushed beneath his heel whenever he died. And friends, in his death, he has delivered every single air of grace through every single uh, era of time. And no matter what their circumstances, they're all going to be there. Did he deliver people in his life? Sure he did. He raised a widow's son back to life. He raised Jairus' daughter back to life. He raised Lazarus back to life. He healed lepers. He cleansed the blind. And he uh, blessed the death to hear. He did many things. And friends, he still does many things today. He still delivers us today in our trials and our tribulations. But never forget for a moment, friends, that in his death, he destroyed our enemy and he delivered us more than we've ever experienced in our life. And friends, much like with (coughs) Hannah and Samuel, because he was given to the Lord, there was some fruitfulness that came about as a result of that. When Hannah gave her child, Samuel, to the Lord, the Lord blessed her fivefold to have three sons and two daughters as a result of her righteous uh, decision to honor her promise. Friends, may I submit to you that if Jesus Christ had never left the portals of glory, he would still be God. If God had never chosen to save his people, he would still be God. If the Lord had left us where we were, he would have still been God. And I believe as God, he'd have been as self-sufficient and powerful as he ever was and ever will be. But he would have been alone. What does Jesus say in John 12 and verse 24? He said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. It what? It abideth alone. Friends, you can take a kernel of corn and hold it in your hand from now until the time you die, and it will abide alone. It will just stay there, kernel of corn in your hand. But you take that same kernel of corn and you put it in the ground and you give it care, and what happens? A stalk comes up, and you keep waiting, and tassel comes up, and then an ear comes out. Break that ear open, and what do you have? Substance of the very same quality as that seed you put in the ground. Friends, when the Lord came down, He came down, And he did it so that he would not abide alone. He went into the ground and he died. Why? So that he would not abide alone. 
And when he came up out of the ground, friends, he came up victorious. Why? So that he would not abide alone. And I submit to you that in heaven he is going to be more than content. He's going to be happy because as a father, his quiver is going to be full of his arrows and he's going to have all his children with him. And the Lord's productivity, if you will, will be blessed. With Hannah it was fivefold. With Samuel, with the Lord, it's multitudes upon multitudes. It's thousands upon thousands. And thousands of thousands, John says in Revelation. It's a great blessing and a great number that happened because he was given Friends, he was given not to us, but for us. He was given, friends, not to be our uh, potential, but to be our reality. Not to be our maybe, but to be our surely. Not to be something that could happen, but something that will happen. Friends, because he has come, the Lord is going to have all of his children in heaven with him, world without end. And finally, with John the Baptist, I told you he was unique. I told you he was different. I told you that his life was really like no others. And friends, I don't have the ability to be a forerunner for Christ. I don't have the ability to be uh, the one who baptizes Christ. Not in the way that John did. But I'm going to tell you something, friends. There is something about John that I think is very special. There's something about John that I think is very precious because it connects John to us. It connects who John is to where we are today. Whenever John was in prison in Matthew 11... Whenever John was in his last moments on earth, but in wonder and in doubt over who Christ was, and he sends two of his disciples to say, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus gives this response back. Go show John again those things which you have seen and heard, how the uh, dead, uh, the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the lame walk, the dead are raised back to life, and the poor had the gospel preached unto them, and whosoever is not, off- whosoever is not offended in me. And... When that answer comes back and Jesus watches those messengers leave, he says, what did you think of John? What was he to you? What did you see? A man in soft raiment? No, that's in king's houses. What did you go to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What did you go to see? A prophet? Ah, but more than a prophet. Here's who he was. Matthew eleven eleven. he says, Verily I say unto you that of men born of women... There hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. Boy, that's something. Boy, that's special. This isn't just anybody talking. This is Christ talking. And friends, I do believe because of his position, he was greater than anybody else. In Luke, it says in Luke 7 that there's no no greater prophet than John the Baptist. What made him so great? Because he stood in that spot to do those things to observe what he observed and to be a fulfillment of the prophecies made about him. But notice the next phrase, notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We're like Isaac in that we were birthed by promise. We're like Jacob in the sense that we were chosen, not according to who we were. And because of our Joseph, we're blessed Because he's been given, we've been multiplied. Because of his strength, we've been delivered. But friends, John the Baptist, while pointing to Christ, I think is probably the most applicable to us, and here's why. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Friends, his name was not John, first name, last name, Baptist. 
His first name was not John, middle name the, last name Baptist. He was called John the Baptist because of what he did. He was the first to ever do this. And I'll say this, in his day, he was the only one authorized by God to do that. That's why Jesus went as far as he did to go to John to be baptized. He didn't just pick some random person. He went to John to be baptized. But I want you to consider all those people that came to John. Every time he put one under and brought them back up, every time he saw that look on their face, he saw something that he didn't understand. Even comes to the point when Jesus comes to him, he even, I think rightly so, says, look, we need to reverse this. I really should be baptized by you, not you by me. But Jesus told him, thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness, and John suffered it, and he baptized him. And with Jesus, he saw something special. He saw the heaven opened. He heard the voice of God, and he saw the form of God like a dove descend and light upon him. John saw that, and John beheld that. And friends, may I submit to you that John saw that, he beheld that, without ever truly being able to be a part of what he had just done. John baptized, but unlike all of us, he was never baptized. John performed it, but he never experienced it. Friends, the very least person in the kingdom of God today has experienced what John never did. But it's an ordinance that John began through God's so choice to do so. But I'll say this. Much like John, by faith we can say there he is. By faith we can see, say that the heavens have been opened. By faith, we can say we have heard the voice of God. Not with this, but in here. Friends, have you seen heaven open by faith? Have you heard God speak to your soul by faith? Have you seen the form of God light upon events in your life? And friends, like John, have you been able to have in the prisons of your life, Jesus once again in His mercy and His kindness say, Here it is again. Here it is again. Here it is again. Friends, there is something to be said about hearing it again. I need to hear again that my Jesus came into this world, that my Jesus was born, and that my Jesus has saved his people from their sins, and that all these things pointed unto him. Because, friends, I'm included in all that. It's not according to nature. It's not according to who I am. But it's according to his own good pleasure that he saved us. And when it comes to me in my life, I need to be able to point him out and say, Behold, the Lamb of God, which hath taken away the sin of the world. Friends, it is our rich privilege, not as John to be his forerunners, but as John to be his heralders and say, Look what he's done. Look how he's delivered. Look how he's blessed. He's opened wombs. He's delivered lives. He's brought the dead back to life through his own person and through his own work. And because of that, friends, we live. And because of that, friends, we can stand. And because of that, we can walk. And we can have our heads, heads held high and have courage in this world. Not because of who I am, because of who he is. Because of what he's come and done. Because of where he sits. Because of his power and because of his authority. Friends, if he could open a 90-year-old woman's womb thousands of years ago, what can't he do today? If he could bless a virgin 2,000 years ago to have a son, what can he do today? And friends, if he could still love utter wretches as we are, not as we were, but as we are, 
Because I'm still that way by nature. Friends, Paul didn't say, oh, wretched man that I was. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. I still come short of the glory of God. And his love abides continually upon me. What can't he do today? Wherever you are, I want you to think about if the Lord could open a barren womb, what can he do today? If the Lord could send the very best that heaven had, what can't he do today? And the Lord could withhold all the things that he's capable of doing by his power. What can't he do today? I get cast down. I get down in the holy grubs, just like everybody else. But friends, i got to close this somewhere. Remember this. It's not just that the Lord doesn't fail. He's not even discouraged. Isn't that amazing? Even when you don't fail, even when I don't fail, we still get discouraged. He's not discouraged today. He is as he always has been, but he's not as he always will be. Because friends, Abraham's with him now. Sarah's with him now. Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, Manoah and Mrs. Manoah, <laughs> Hannah and Elkanah, her husband, the wise woman of Shunem's there, Zechariah and, and Elizabeth and John the Baptist are there too. The Lord's not alone. He came and he's not alone. But friends, with every passing day, more go home. To be with him. And one day I hope to join that number. I hope to be in that band. Because of him I'm not alone. And what's amazing. Is it because of us. And what he's done for us. He's not alone. Now. There's some people I'd just rather not see. Be honest. Aren't there some people you just rather not see? He's going to be glad see every one of us why because of his power and what he's done thank God that he has done these things for us thank God he's done these things so that we would be with him and thank God that we're going to be one it's going to sound so weird one big happy family for all eternity to him be the glory and to him be the praise may the Lord to bless you is my prayer we're going to stand together sing a song in conclusion Publish an open door to the church. If there's one more here that would like to join the church this day, please come while we sing. On the second verse, I'll have a handshake one with another. What's your number, brethren? 325. Number 325. If you'd like to, please stand. 325.